Welcome to the Inspiring Leadership podcast series. This is aimed for you aspiring leaders, whatever level you're at, whether you're beginning out in your careers as managers and leaders, whether you're in middle ranking roles, or whether you're CEOs and chairman of boards, there's always something we can all learn. And it's particularly the skills, stories, tips and techniques that you can pass on to those you lead and your teams. Good afternoon. Uh, my name is Seamus Kerr and I'm Managing Director of the D Group based here in Mayfair. Uh, the role of the D Group is to assist companies for strategic business development and help develop their strategies. It helps them win work. We also act as an interface between government and business, helping translate the what into the how and the realities that businesses can assist with. Welcome to this uh, um, inspiring leadership series. I'd now like to hand over to Jonathan. Thank you very much indeed, Seamus. It's great to have you on the series. And a number of people spoke very highly of you. You were a major general in the army um, and they served with you or knew you, or they've been very impressed by the work that the D Group does and the fascinating people that you're connected to. You have a black book to envy any headhunter of all these fascinating leaders who have been CEOs, have been senior officers and a variety of roles. So thank you for coming on the series. Um, tell us uh, what you're doing at the moment and, and what you enjoy most about, about being the managing director of the D Group. Um, I mean, what we're doing at the moment, we uh, very much reflect um, what our members uh, wishes to uh, assist them with. And we're operating in four particular areas or themes. Uh, the first one is national security. Um, and we're working with Stephen Lovegrove, the national security advisor, again, following on from the integrated review um, and assisting him as he's, he's asked for, they've asked for an interface with business in looking at the 146 recommendations for the integrated review, how business can assist in translating those into actions. Uh, our second theme is space. Um, and we've been, again, working with, uh, with, the, with, with the MOD in, in their National um, Space Command and other areas, and also helping them develop that by getting feedback from business um, and assisting. We're, at the moment, we're looking at assisting with how we finance it, because there's mm. not enough government money to go around um, for that. Uh, we also operate in the infrastructure space uh, and work with Nick Smallwood from the Cabinet Office, and we, we produced a couple of papers assisting him. But in essence, how do we decarbonize the, the built estate? Um, how do we bring down price? Um, and how do we also increase the margin for the construction companies? Mm. Uh, at the moment, they operate on, in a very low, uh, low area of profit margins of one or two percent, which is, is very challenging. Mm. We also operate in uh, technology, so artificial intelligence, cyber quantum, fusion, what all this means for business going forward. Uh, and the golden thread is very much net zero. Mm. You know, the, the big challenges that we now face on the world, to try and keep the temperature range now down to uh, under 1.5% is going to be a real challenge. So how do we deal with that? And not only here in the UK, but huge security implications out in uh, India, um, also um, in, in, in Nigeria, in Africa. Um, and you know, it, they all very much interweave and they're interwoven and uh, work together. 
Yeah. Well, thank you for that, James. I mean, it's fascinating areas that you deal with. But also, I'm going to talk a bit about your life in a moment. But what a fascinating life you've had. You've circumnavigated the world in the Merchant Navy. You joined the army for a five pound bet and then left um, some 35 years later as a major general, serving in a variety of fascinating roles with some other uh, inspiring leaders that you've learned from on the way. But tell, tell me, uh, if we take you right back to childhood, what shaped you into the leader you are today? What events happened to you? Where we born, what parents, uh, you know, values that they set in you? Just tell us a bit about yourself, James, if you would, for a few minutes. Yes, yeah, so my, my father was a, a country vet. We grew up in Ludlow in Shropshire on a, on a farm. Um, I think from the very outset, uh, my father used to play back to us. And it was rather boring at the time, but you know, work and play are just four-letter words. And if you can interpose them, uh, it actually makes life a lot easier and a lot more fun. Um, I was sent off to boarding school at six. Uh, so I think that, you know, perhaps a bit early, um, certainly for these days, but it did give you a level of independence. Um, and I, I remember, I think this is going way back now to the, the very early 60s, uh, meeting one evening um, Field Marshal Lord Montgomery. Wow. Um, and we were lining up to go into church and a good friend standing on my left was uh, Ponting Horton. And Ponting Horton, I think it was his great uncle, had been the photographer on the Scott expedition. So Montgomery came and met both of us. And we, we had to stand in front of him in church for you know, an hour that evening. But I think all those experiences kind of shape one's life. Um, John Betjeman had been to the school and used to come and read poetry mm. um, once, a, uh, once a term. Uh, we went to church three times a day. Um, and I think, you know, the church at the beginning of one's life uh, played a very important part uh, in my life. And I've, you know, I've tried to you know, live to those standards if I possibly can do so. I mean, not, not to be self-righteous, but I think right from the very beginning. And if you if you stay in school, you're fortunate enough to become you know, a house captain or a school captain. You, you begin to see uh, the difference you can perhaps make as a leader. Mm. And could you explain when you went from school and whatever transition you had into the army, what was uh, after your time uh, going around the world with the Merchant Navy, what was the specialism you went into within the army and what were some of the most interesting roles that you had that those who were in the military would understand if they if they heard the different units you were with and the brigades and divisions? Um, I mean, I, I think I was exceptionally fortunate. I didn't come from a military background. I knew nothing about the, the military at all. Um, my, my platoon commander was in the, in the Ordnance Corps, and I was, I was only going to join um, for three years. Um, and during those, um, during those first three years after leaving Sandhurst, I spent a, a year with the Gloucesters uh, and did a Northern Ireland tour as a, a young platoon commander, which many of us did at that stage. Um, I mean, I, I thoroughly enjoyed that and would probably have wanted to stay with the Gloucesters for a few more years, but the, the Corps wants me to come back. So I was very lucky to be promoted to a, a captain at 21. Wow. Um, I think some of the, the, the most important or shaping tours at that stage um, were, I was very lucky, I think, to be an adjutant, um, staff captain, 
um, in 12 armored brigades. And I think one needs luck in one's career, the people one, work, one works with. Um, so Nick Horton was a, uh, a captain in the same headquarters who ultimately became chief of defense staff and is now Lord Horton of, of, of Richmond. Um, and there were two or three of you know, two or three of us at that stage, all, all ended up as, as generals in the headquarters. And I think that was very much leadership from the, uh, from the brigade commander. Um, who who my, was the brigade commander? Um, Peter Davis at that stage. Oh, yes. With Royal Signals. Royal Signals, yeah. You'll know well. Yeah. Um, and following that, I went on to Staff College in Quetta, uh, the old Indian Army Staff College in Pakistan, which I think going to an overseas staff college gives you a, a more rounded view of life and you begin to see things from the other person's lens as opposed to just your own. Um, I came back from there and was Deputy Chief of Staff, 7th Armoured Brigade. Um, Christopher Wallace was the brigade commander and was, was my divisional commander when I was a commanding officer as well. Uh, David, David Leakey, who became a Lieutenant General and Black Rob was the Chief of Staff. Um, and James Shaw, the Signal Squadron Commander, became a, a Major General as well. You'll know mm. James Shaw. I do, um, yeah. And I... I, I I put that all down to luck. If you're lucky to work with talented people, I wouldn't claim I'm particularly talented, but you, you learn from them and you're given those opportunities. And I, I thoroughly enjoyed those you know, opportunities in a brigade headquarters. Mm. Um, I was then fortunate to be on the directing staff at Staff College in Camberley, um, co commanded a battalion and then a, a new regiment in the Royal Logistic Corps. Uh, from there, went out to Northern Ireland, and I'll refer to some incidents in Northern Ireland later on. But you know, General Roger Wheeler, who became Chief of the General Staff, uh, I think was a particularly good GOC and an outstanding, outstanding leader. Um, and from there, was lucky to command a, um, a logistic brigade and finish commanding the 4th Division. And right. I think the training that the Army provides throughout we are so fortunate compared to business. I'd only pick out one course, I think, which is the Royal College of Defence Studies, which um, Winston Churchill formed in 1927. Uh, and you had their representatives from the Navy, Army and Air Force, but also the Metropolitan Police, uh, the prison service, um, the big OEMs, you know, Lockheed Martins of this world, BAE Systems. On my particular course, I think we had we're nearly just over 70 overseas officers from all over the world. Uh, and you studied anything that could be a potential threat to world security, from political systems to religion, to raw materials, to you know, water. And you did a world tour. I mean, what more could you ask for? But you know, it could be looking through the lens of an Israeli, um, somebody from Zimbabwe, uh, you know, we had someone from China there, somebody from Russia, particularly pertinent when you, you note know, what's happened today with Russia invading the Ukraine. Um, but, I mean, I love my 35 years and I think I've been particularly lucky again afterwards uh, and I've thoroughly enjoyed the 16 years I've been in business. Yeah, because you had that nice mix of uh, you had 12 years afterwards at Carillion. Um, where, uh, if I'm right, where you, you saw some interesting experiences 
but also things didn't go so well at times. And, and I'm sure you learn a lot from what does work and what doesn't work. What, what, what was your thought about what you learned in both in the military and then what you learned in Carillion? Um, it's interesting you're going to, you, you've asked that question. Um, I, I think it comes down to the importance of leadership uh, and preparing leaders to lead at the appropriate level, the tactical, the operational, and the, and the strategic. Mm. Um, and you know, we had a, a really strong operational leader um, in Carillion, um, and he was dealt some very difficult hands. And I think if he looked back, he would probably say, I wish I'd been prepared better for this role than I actually had. Mm. Um, and I, I mean, I, I wrote a paper on it afterwards and compared very much the kind of strategic leadership qualities required in the military and required in business. Mm. And they are very similar. But I would say in, in the military, it's all about operational output, um, where in business, you clearly have to generate a profit, but also lead people with all the same values at the same time. Yeah, there's many lessons um, with the different business CEOs that I'm working with now that they could have learned a lot from both that paper that you wrote, but also your experience of the strategic, the operation and the tactical. And people tend to get drawn down to the lowest possible denominator in business, I see, and they have to be pulled up so they're not doing the next two levels down or or a couple of founders of a big multi-billion business that I know who attempted to go two levels down and start getting involved in the weeds of things. doesn't mean that you, you shouldn't understand what's going on. It's very important you do, but I think they have a tendency to do that. That's really interesting. And Chavis, can we then go on to looking at the whole of your career, uh, proudest moment and what you learned from that, uh, the happiest moment for you, and also perhaps the darkest moment when things weren't so great, either personally or with work, and what you learned from that. Yeah, I mean, it, I, it, it's very difficult to answer some of these questions, but I, I think the proudest moment, I think, would be, um, I've chosen the three proudest moments because they're, they're all actually very similar, which was the, the birth of our three daughters, mm. Um, and to see them grow up into you know, three young, wonderful young women and the importance of family. Mm. Uh, and it's family, I think, that you fall back on in those dark times. And if, it, if you're lucky enough to have a strong family behind you, it gives you a strength and a resilience, which I think if you're operating on your own or you're operating in a vacuum behind you, must be particularly difficult. Mm. Um, I think one of the... The darkest moments in my life was on the 2nd of June, 1994. Um, I was a, a full colonel um, as a decos in headquarters, Northern Ireland. And we had that awful Chinook accident um, when you know, 29 people were killed. And uh, General Sir Roger Wheeler, um, you know, having gone across on the recce that, that night, sent me across the next morning and I spent the next two weeks identifying um, all of the bodies, many of them my friends, and bringing them back, um, speaking to the, the widows, arranging funerals, going to funerals. And it was a, it was a, a challenging time. But um, General Roger had, had gone across on that first evening and he met the superintendent who dealt with the Lockerbie bomb. And he said that whoever you send over, don't leave them there on the ground 
overnight, bring them back uh, to the headquarters. So each day I was flown back at the end of the day and back early in the morning and would have a, a glass of whiskey with, uh, with Roger and talk over what happened. Mm. Uh, and I, I think one of the lessons is that if you're going through challenging times, it really helps to share it and discuss it. And it's if you, if you keep it to yourself uh, and you internalize it too much, I think that's when people end up with PTSD and other mental challenges which so many people are facing at the moment. Mm. It's really interesting. You and I were talking about this before we started the series. Um, do, do you find that things come back to you from that time or have you managed to, to deal with it and, and compartmentalize it? Um, I, I do think about it and talk about it and it does come back. But I, I mentioned luck quite a lot. I think it's, you know, it's luck on your intellect, luck what skills you may or may not have. And I've largely been able to compartmentalize it um, and, and deal with it because in the military, you see a number of things over your career and, and you do have to deal with it. And if you can't deal with it, you can't talk about it. Um, I think it creates, as we've seen, it creates real problems. And I think at the end of the, the Northern Ireland campaign, you know, we had psychiatric nurses down at each site. People were debriefed after incidents. And I think one of the, we forgot those lessons when we went into the Balkans and then we went into Iraq and Afghanistan. And I think we're seeing the, the consequences now of young men and women having real challenges. It, it, there's many things in what you've said that really resonate with me. I'll come back to the challenges in business of people with mental health issues. People understand it in the military. But this tragic instance where 29 were killed reminds me in my upbringing. My grandfather was flying from Northern Ireland. He worked for the war office uh, on a project I can't talk about even now. But he was flying to see my uncle, who was a pilot uh, in Lossiemouth, and on his way there, he crashed into a hillside and everybody in the aircraft was killed. And then my father was killed on a Buccaneer Mark I aircraft, age 33, when uh, a piece of the uh, engine flew out and cut through it, caused a fire. My father got the navigator out, but he died trying to bring the aircraft in. And then my uncle was killed test flying a helicopter at Porton Down with the inventor when the blades fell off the helicopter and it piled into the ground so so those kind of instance you never as a family and I can't imagine what it's like for the 29 um, different families affected by it you never get over it. it you live with it throughout the whole of your life and 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 I'm drawn to the point you make about mental health I'm seeing more and more cases of burnt out senior executives who are on what we would have seen as four six month back-to-back -to -back tours and, and they're exhausted and burnt out and they're not coping very well. I don't know whether you've come across much as, as you discuss this kind of topic with different business leaders at the D Group. Yes, I have. And we've, we've had speakers on mental health. Um, I mean, how I cope with it and how I advise if, I, if I'm asked for advice, I think, it's, I think it's so important to keep yourself physically fit. Um, I think as we have good, bad, and indifferent physical health, we also have good, bad, and indifferent mental health. Um, and different people deal with pressures in different ways. But 
I, I look at the people who um, succeed in leading and, and it, it's not you know, taken as stress. Uh, they, I think they found what is a passion in their life. Um, they seem to have a good balance between their, their family life and their work. Um, they keep themselves in good physical shape um, and they don't uh, make the mistake of trying to do everything you alluded to earlier. Mm. If you're leading at a strategic level, you don't have to be busy all the time. You should make time to be able to think, make time to go and visit your people on the ground and ensure that you, you live your values of your company. Mm. Uh, if, as you said, you try and do everything right down to the bottom level, you are clearly going to be overworked, come under pressure, and then, and then not perform. Yeah, um, exactly. Exactly. No, I couldn't agree more. Yeah. Uh, and if, if all the experience that you've had now, both in, in services, in business, and now across both sectors, really, in a way, in, in this fascinating role you've got now. Looking back to when you were 16, James, you know, if you could go back to the future in the DeLorean car and meet yourself with all the wisdom you have, what would you say, this matters, but don't worry about that. It really doesn't matter. What, what advice would you give yourself? Um, if I look back at myself, I think I was too serious on occasions um, and didn't take or make the time to enjoy the moment because uh, we have such wonderful experiences in our life. Uh, and, and we were very busy then, but I think now with the modern pressures of technology, people are even busier. And, and therefore I think it is so important to, to make time for things, make time for the family, make time for looking after your staff, um, celebrate success, um, help people where, where you possibly, possibly can. But to directly answer your question, I would say, enjoy the moment and, and enjoy life. We, we punish ourselves so much in our head, unnecessarily worrying about things. Mm. And, and I, I can remember, you know, you'd leave a, a dinner party or, or, or an event and you think, I, I wish I'd said that better. We, you can't change it. Life has to go on, put it behind you and crack on. Yeah, I, I, I really resonate with that one. I think, uh, and, and Richard Dannett was always one when I was his, uh, he was commanding officer, I was a company commander, a young, rather naive company commander. And he would say, don't, don't, just don't take things too seriously, lighten up a bit. You know, I, I resonate with that one. And I think humanity, humility and humour are the things that I probably would have told myself back there. Um, let's go around the Inspiring Leadership Compass. This is the, the research that we did into what makes high performing leaders and teams. Uh, Chambers, the first one is MQ, moral quotient. Um, your three fundamental values that you aspire to live by and what did you learn on those occasions when you let it slip? I, I mean, I'm, I, I'm not particularly religious, I don't think. I mean, I, 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 but I, I go back to, I think, my time at school and when we were you know, very much taught to try and live by the Ten Commandments, um, and I, and I think if you, if you sat down as a human being and you tried to write down how one should lead your life as a society, I can't think of a be much better guidance than the Ten Commandments. Mm. Um, and if we, if we let them slip, I mean, you're saying, you know, how, do you, how do you deal with it? 
we, we, we try not to, but we're human beings. You know, we, we do make, we do make mistakes. Um, you know, occasionally we're, we're selfish. Occasionally we're not um, as caring as we, as we should be. I think it's a matter of being honest and being open and accepting that. Uh, apologize for your mistakes um, and then and then again move on and, and learn from where you've made those mistakes. Yeah, I think uh, apologizing and having some humility to admit when you've got you've done wrong or you've made a mistake is so important. And and in the CEOs that I see that struggle the most, they're the ones that, you know, when you ask them, when was the last time you personally were dead wrong? I had one guy said to me, could have been 1982, or maybe maybe it was earlier than that. I, I really can't remember. I, I'm generally not wrong. And you go, that's the problem. <laughs> if, yeah. you, if you can't admit that you personally were wrong and you've got something to learn and you can you can rectify it, then we've got severe problems. It's almost the Trump, I think the Trump you, syndrome. Yeah, I mean, you have, you have to learn all the time. I mean, I am so fortunate in this job that, you know, the speakers that we have in, the leaders from industry, um, and, and you, the, the real leaders are humble, um, and they do continue to learn, um, and they, they are inspirational because of that. Mm. Um, and, and also the importance of just being yourself. Don't try and be somebody else. Mm. You know, whoever you think is a great leader, it may be Winston Churchill, but don't try and be a Winston Churchill. Be yourself. Yeah, I wish someone had told Boris that. Yeah, that would have, that would have gone down well. PQ is the next one. Personal um, uh, purpose and meaning. What you know? What's what gives you a vocation, a calling? You know, you've served for thirty five years. We did things before that with Merchant Navy, and now you know you've been in business um, and, and now cross business and cross government. What? What? Why do you do what you do, James? Um. We, we had all our children, our, you know, three uh, daughters and their, their partners and um, grandchildren over Christmas. And they were there for New Year's Eve. And they, they, they asked a, a similar question. And I'll, I'll give the short answer, then give a bit more detail after. You know, Daddy, what do you do? <laughs> and we just help people. That is my job. And I, if I can help people realize their ambitions and help company realize their ambitions, it it, um, it makes it a good day, and and there are good days and there are bad days. But if you can if you can help people realize their true potential ambitions, it, it gives me great satisfaction to be able to do it. I think it's important about being kind. You know, um, it's it's so important because it's it's a it's a difficult world, um, and. And also um, have a sense of fun. You've got to enjoy every day. It goes back to you know, when you asked me about you know, the advice you give that young 16-year-old. Uh, don't be so serious. In, enjoy life. Continue to enjoy it. You, know, um, you, know, you described your, you know, your relatives who died. It could happen to any of us. I could get knocked over going to catch a black cub back to, my, you know, back to the club tonight. So actually enjoy every moment. Enjoy this interview. Mm, yeah, it, it, it's it, things like that. We, we don't know how long we've got to live. There's a cracking book I recommend, quite philosophical, called 4,000 Weeks by Oliver Berkman. And I've really enjoyed listening to it a couple of times. I'm dyslexic, so my way of learning is to, to listen to audiobooks. And, uh, you know, if you were to think back between when you were born, Seamus, and if you make it to 80, um, 
then you have 4,000 weeks on the planet. What are you going to do with your 4,000 weeks? I mean, I'm just about to celebrate my 60th, which gives me 1,040 weeks left. Now, that's not long. So, it, you know, make the most of that week and that day, I've certainly learned. Um, thank you for that on, on purpose. The next one round is health. And we've talked about mental health components. And you've also mentioned a bit on physical. But what, what about you? What, what's worked for you? Colin Powell's book was it, it, it worked for me. But what's worked for you over the years, keeping yourself fit and healthy? Um, I mean, I think in the, well, like you, we, were both, we both served. Um, and you were encouraged to keep fit. So, I, I mean, I, I think I'm a strong believer in keeping yourself physically fit, fit you know, right to the end of your life as much as you possibly can do so. Uh, so I, I try and take as much exercise as I can. Um, I don't during the week get as much in London as I should do. But, you know, back home at the weekends, I will try and cycle each day. If I can go swim, I might go and hit some golf balls. Um, you know, still try perhaps occasionally the odd game of squash. Uh, but it, it all helps and it helps you relax. I, and I think that translates right into your mental health as well. Mm. Because I think by, by putting yourself under pressure, and, and I think there is evidence that the endomorphins that you generate have a positive impact on your brain. Um, and I think it's kept me in, in reasonable shape. Um, I, I think quite often you know, there is an issue around mental health and, and hereditary conditions, which are difficult to deal with. Uh, but I said, right, it's, it's, I think it's a matter of talking about it. Mm. If you talk about challenges, a challenge shared makes it easier to deal with. Mm. No, there, there's no doubt about it. There's an interesting book I'm just reaching up into my shelf, Brain Maker, which I've just finished reading by uh, Dr. David Perlmutter. And it's really about the essence of our eat, move, sleep, breathe, that kind of important part but that actually our microbiome and what we feed it has a huge impact on our mental health and on, also on our longevity and our physical health. And the, um, uh, the whole area of um, the, the microbiome and our epigenetics, the, the way that we can shape our genetics by the life we lead, the stress we have, the sleep we have. I think it's a fascinating area. Thank you for, for your part on, on health. Yeah, and I think genetics as well play an important part. And, that, and that's coming back to luck again, which I've referred to a few times. I mean, my, my father was still working at 82 um, and his, his father was still working at 84. Wow. Um, and, you know, it's that bit. If you find something you have a passion about, it's not really work. Mm. It's a privilege to do it and therefore it takes the pressure off. Yeah, there's no doubt about it. And, and also when people come to the end of their career, if they suddenly stop and retire and just don't do anything, they're often tragically, like a number of judges, dead within a couple of years. So you do need to keep the, the body and the brain active and alive. That uh, the research certainly shows. You um, are, are commended by various people by your emotional and social intelligence, your ability to read people, connect people. Uh, particularly in your job, it, it, is, it is one of... Of, of getting to know a whole load of different people and finding what makes them tick. What's your top tip about how you've developed emotional and social intelligence? Uh, if people were listening, what tip would you give them? I think I would say it's, it's beginning to, um, to really understand people. Um, and you, know, you, were, you were taught when you went out to the Middle East on business, uh, and you might be invited to a Majlis. 
that actually a lot of the talk is all about family and getting to understand what people what people makes people tick. Um, people generally like speaking about themselves and therefore you know learn to to listen. Um, and, and if you have a genuine love of people, um, it's not it's not difficult. Mm. Uh, but some people are shy and reticent and, and quieter. Um, you can't really change who you are, um, but somehow make make the best of what you actually have. I, I enjoy people's you know, comfort. We do a lot of um, coaching here for leadership as well at peer working group um, and also potential C-suite directors. Um, and you, we look at all the softer skills that people can develop. Um, and so much of it is, as you become more senior, is having that, uh, those list of contacts, people you can go to. But if they become genuine friends, and you're not just, and it's awful when people just try and take advantage of people for who they are, uh, you, must come, you must be genuine for what you are all the time. And it's probably an overused phrase, but treat others as you wish to be treated yourself. So if you're generous, um, I will do as much as I possibly can for people. Mm -hmm. um, I don't want paying for it. Um, and then, you know, occasionally you may have a favour to ask of somebody and hopefully they will, they will help you. Yeah, and that's uh, raised up in a recent book I was reading by Adam Grant called Give and Take, where in the research he finds that there's people like uh, um, the, uh, the gentleman Lay in charge of Enron, who was a taker, but he appeared to be a giver. But it was always with the expectation of something in return. And, um, and then you come across some phenomenal people who are very giving. And then there's matches who tend to give, but with the expectation of something back. Or if they receive something, they want to give something back. And just very interesting how the people who are most successful are givers. But yet the fun of the people who are least successful are givers because they don't get the balance right sometimes. They're too much giving and they're not getting on with their performance. Um, CQ is the next one, cultural intelligence quotient, diversity, equality, inclusion. I mean, you began your life early on um, traveling the world and seeing people of every race and nation and, and background. What's been your tip that you'd give people about accepting people who are different from you and trying to understand them? I think it's coming from a standpoint that we are all equal in life, and it's an accident of birth, um, where you're born, what country you're born in. Um, I would then say it's a matter of being respectful for people's values and traditions. So, you know, Sue and I have been very fortunate to live, live around the world. And, and in the services in particular, we're lucky that, I remember before we went out to Pakistan, spending a week um, at Farnham Castle, when you were taught about the, the values, the customs, how to behave. Um, if, you, if you're not taught, you know, listen and don't charge into a situation and assume just because you're fortunate, you can take control. Um, so I would go back to always be respectful of people, um, wherever they are. And you, you might be a road sweeper. If you're a, a great road sweeper, Actually, you're as good as anybody in the country. Uh, and if you, if you, I think if you come from, not to be self-righteous, but if you, if you come from that standpoint, um, you know, respect then results in 
I think a whole better society. And if you can actually inject some love uh, under the right meaning for that, you know, love and respect, people then behave appropriately. If you, if you behave, I, I've seen occasionally you know, toxic leaders, um, you know, infrequently, but occasionally you do, and it generates fear, um, and you never, ever get the best out of people. Mm. Yeah. Uh, we'll, we'll talk about toxic leadership in, in a moment. I think that's a very interesting topic. Throughout your career, you've been required to be resilient because you, whether it be having to do that grim uh, examination of the bodies of your friends after the Chinook crash or other situations where adversity and setback and disappointment never kind of worked out as you thought they might do. What's your, your best tip on resilience and coping with setbacks? I would say is that you, if you end up in a, a challenging situation and we, we make mistakes on occasions, I would say is to, to learn from your mistakes, um, make, a, make a plan to move forward. Um, if you've got you know, a real friend or I mean, you know, probably lots of friends to discuss it uh, and then move forward and then don't look backwards, look forwards. Um, because actually, we mentioned it earlier in this, this, this chat, that if you continue to look backwards and you regret things, you'll suddenly find that those 4,000 weeks are gone and your life has ended. Mm. Um, so try, if you possibly can do so. And it's a mindset, I think, to put things behind you and move forward and learn from it. Yeah, great, great wisdom there. And, and there's the sort of caveat that some take that literally without the added bit of what David Marquet, who was the captain of the USS Santa Fe and wrote two excellent books called Turn the Ship Around and Leadership is Language. And uh, he was on this podcast. I do recommend you and others have a listen to his talk. But he was saying there was a classic case, uh, thinking back to your Merchant Navy days, of um, the captain of this huge tanker who just kept going into the eye of a hurricane. And he had a couple of occasions when he could review the decision he'd made to keep going. And, 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 and it's this make a decision, but have some review points in the future where you can check, has the situation changed? Have the Russians invaded Ukraine or not? Whatever it might be. And, and, and to use those points to decide, is this still right? I, I think it was Churchill, wasn't it? He said, he was criticized in the House of Commons for changing his opinion. He said, Sir, I may change my opinion, but when the situation changes, what do you do? And, and, and I think that's a, 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 an addition to what I think you'd say. What's, what's your thoughts, Joseph? No, I mean, I, I would agree with that totally. And actually, you, you mentioned the hurricane storm. In, in the Merchant Navy, uh, there's a typhoon coming in, and we were just off Taiwan, and we, we dashed for port. I mean, that's what the, the decision the captain made. Um, and, you know, all the big ships were doing that. And we tied up three ships out and there were two Russian ships came in late and had to anchor up facing out to sea. They were, they were blown off their anchors and smashed down the side of our ships and killed hundreds of fishermen at the end of the harbor who'd gone there for safety. And then you get about half an hour of peace before it comes out again. But the, the, the captain was an inspiring leader and by his leadership, people kept calm, uh, we helped where we could with the, the fishermen and their families. And we were there for about eight weeks as the, the ship was prepared. But I, I would agree totally with that when, you, when you, you made the Churchill comment there, that 
you know, as with, it's question for mission analysis, isn't it? I mean, if the, if the situation has changed, uh, you have to review your plan. You don't plow on regardless. Yeah, and yeah. I think these days in business, the situation changes so quickly. You know, I was at a, a meeting with a company last night, um, you know, Interos, and they, they were looking at, been, they were a wonderful new piece of software can, can look at actually um, supply chains and track them all the way back to where they originate. Because so many people will know the first and second and third you know, lines in their supply chain, but thousands of companies had supply chains going back into Russia. Mm. Now, what does that mean this morning? So, you know, so has the situation changed? Do people know on their risk matrix that actually there's a new risk in business this morning that they were unaware of? Yeah. You know, apart from the stock market impacts around the world, price of oil, the price of gas, it affects all businesses. So you've got to be alive to the changes all the time. And I think have a tool that helps you to deal with it. You know, I often, when we're doing some leadership development here, ask, you know, how do you make a decision? Mm. And people so often look at you blankly and you think, well, yeah, how do you make a decision? Just make it like that. Or, you know, we were all trained how to make a decision, wasn't it? Aim mm -hmm. factors, courses open and plan. Mm -hmm. um, and th that kind of logic works, I think, really well, because if you have to review a decision, yes, actually, the situation has changed from that point, And therefore, I need to change my plan. Uh, I think it's brilliant. And you really uh, raised a number of interesting questions. You know, people now looking at the situation with Russia invading Ukraine and they go, what's going to happen to Taiwan now? Are the Chinese going to take that as carte blanche? The Russians have, have done the Ukraine. What about them? I think it's, there's a lot of questions which, which flow out from that. What's, what's your thoughts? Well, I mean, I, I mean, I, I think the world has probably been, I mean, I, I think we're probably back where we were in almost in 1938, not to overstate the situation. Um, and I think we need strong leadership at the moment. And, you know, President Putin is a, is a bully. And there's only one way to deal with a bully, which is to be strong. Mm. And if you show any sign of weakness, that weakness is going to be exploited. Um, and, you know, President Xi and President Putin have both been in power for quite some time. Um, Russia, I mean, I was reading about you know, President Putin's views. I mean, we know where his background came from. And, you know, 1989, when the war came down, you know, for him it was an absolute disaster. You know, the dis dissolution of the USSR. And we were talking about earlier on that, you know, the the strong forces that we had on the ground to counter that. We've taken so many cuts at our armed forces since then um, that you know, if we were asked to deploy uh, you know, a division, let alone a corps, very quickly, I suspect we'd be challenged. Um, and you know, it, it costs money to be able to have that capability ready to go. Mm. Uh, both the United well, all, all of NATO, and we've seen the discussions going on. You know, not all NATO members are paying their two percent that they're they're meant to be paying. Mm. Um, and I can understand. You know, it was President Trump saying, you know, trying to encourage us all to do so. But but leaders stating they're not going to put troops on the ground um, creates 
a, a real opportunity because if you see, well, actually, yes, there may be financial um, implications, but actually I can deal with those. Mm. Mm. No, I, I think we, we've got very troubling times ahead. And I think 1938 is exactly the scenario we're in all over again. Thank you for that. Um, turning to yourself and brand question, brand reputation, image and impact. Uh, over the years, how have you learned about your own brand and reputation? Because, you know, it, you were in the army system, which is just starting to change now. But in business, I often do 360 degree feedback on a CEO. Um, but I can't remember during my 20 years service in the military when we did a 360 feedback and I could give feedback on my commanding officer uh, or indeed two levels up on my brigade commander. They weren't interested in my opinion of them. They were interested in their superior's opinion of them, but not their juniors. Um, what, what have you done lately to gain 360 feedback on your own performance and, and to continually improve both in your current job and in previous jobs? I mean, I, I know it's, it's interesting now. I mean, the, uh, the, the military do climate assessments, don't they? Which they, 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 they ask for. And, and it's, it's frequently done in business as well. I, I think that there's a challenge there, and I'll come back to myself after that, that you don't have to be popular to be a good leader. No. Uh, and in tough times, it requires tough leaders. So it, it's, it's a real balance, particularly for the armed forces, because the armed forces are so different to everywhere else that the, you, know, you could be asked to make that ultimate, ultimate sacrifice and lay down your life. So if we try and compare ourselves in the armed services too much with business, it can undermine our operational capability. And that's what our current generation have got to deal with because there's so much noise. Society is so much more open. You know, everything is on our phones. Um, everything we say can be heard and therefore we have to assume that. Um, until you sort of gave me a heads up of the question, I never thought about my brand. I, I still don't think about my brand. I mean, your brand is what people think about you. I think if you try and create a brand, to be honest, I don't really like the idea of someone doing that. No, I think no. it's being yourself. Um, you know, I have a, a fantastic team here in the D group. Um, yeah, there's one other about my age, but he's about 10 years younger. The rest are right at the beginning of their careers. And we do have open discussions. I ask them, you know, you know what do you think about what we're doing? And I ask for feedback in a, openly in a 360-degree uh, reporting system, which I, which I fully support. Because if you don't do that and you don't move with the times, um, you find yourself outdated. Yeah. And I think we all we have to be so careful as we get a bit older that we don't become grumpy and you know, <laughs> think life was perfect when we were young people going through the system. You know, we, we reflect our times and we have to move with those times, but, but actually never let our values and our standards drop. So try and, try and apply those, but not as a boring old fuddy-duddy. Yeah. That, no, that somebody I who cares for the right reasons to try and create, to create a, it's a bit cheesy, but to try and create a better life for everybody. If we can create great wealth in this country, everybody's going to be well off. And then we can help other countries around the world. Yeah. And I think that's perhaps mm -hmm. the same in our personal lives as well. 
Yeah, I, I think you, you make some very good points. And what I found in the best 360 systems in organizations and engagement surveys and things like that is it's, it, it, it goes wrong if they think it's a popularity contest. Uh, it's not. It's about being respected and living the values of the organization, the espoused values of the organization. And I look back on my time in the military and I know there were senior officers who were bullies or white collar psychopaths, if I were to call them that, but nobody caught them out because they cleverly kept looking upwards. And if they had actually done a survey of what people thought of them, they would find them utterly poisonous and toxic, but yeah. nobody called that out because the system didn't allow for it. So I agree with you, Seamus. And I would add that if it's done based on a respect and a following of the values and the culture, living, serve to lead, um, then that's a good system. But not, not if it's just a popularity contest and people are so worried about doing something in case they're not popular. That, that isn't what I see in 360 in business at all. No, yeah. no I mean, we, I mean we, we, we run a, it's a potential chief executives course, C-suite directors, and uh, it's, it's run over a year. But that the golden thread is served to lead, mm. um, and we we take them to the final exercise to Sandhurst, uh, not not as a military exercise. It's it's a board business exercise. But we show them around the memorial chapel. Um, we we have a lead a, a talk on leadership and the the army values, um, just to compare it with business because they're all businessmen, uh, and we have a wonderful you know black tie dinner in the Indian Army room. Uh, and somebody talks about the history of service. Um, and then we, we do PC early the next morning and <laughs> uh, then do a board command post exercise when they, they you know, they're, they're one, they may be the chairman, the chief executive, the chief finance officer, the chief operating officer. And we put them under pressure over the day to um, learn, test all the skills they've learned over the year. Um, but there's a real emphasis on respect and you can't respect others unless you kind of you know, respect yourself in a way and hold yourself to account which we have have to do and you know look at yourself in the mirror when you have let yourself down and you know don't look but learn from it and then move forward yeah that sounds a brilliant course people will be very fortunate to get on that one i'm thinking of one ceo who just te checking out people's character because of course I think it was Richard Dannett said it's uh, it's character and it's integrity. And, you know, he used the example of certain politicians who have character, but no integrity whatsoever. So character attracts people to you, but integrity is how far they'll go with you. And I thought that was a very pertinent point. But this CEO with new a new hire, he'd take them out to a lovely breakfast or a lunch. And he'd arranged with the waiter that the waiter would deliberately mess up the order for this guest, and get it badly wrong, and just watch the reaction of this person, how they would treat the waiter and how would they cope with yeah. the fact that things didn't work out as they thought. I thought it was brilliant. Uh, the last one round before we go on to executive teams and favorite book and then your top tip is legacy. Um, and we find it's very interesting to think about stewardship. You know, you, you as divisional commander, of, of fourth division, you know, how do you leave things better than you found them? The idea of stewardship, how do you leave things better than you inherited it in the D group? Uh, what do you think about this whole idea of stewardship and, and also your legacy, both in your work and your, your family with grandchildren and your three daughters with their, their marriages? I, 
I think that bit about stewardship is so important that actually, as you, you talked about your, your 4,000 weeks, you know, you're in command for two or three years. I, I've been very fortunate and I love this job in the D group and I hope we try very hard to do our best for our members. Is, but it is only a stewardship. You're there, hopefully. It's not about you or the individual. Um, you know, it was never my division uh, or my brigade or my my D group or other things I do as well. Um, if you can leave something better than when you started and it's not about you, that, that is the important thing. It's not about self. It's about having a strategy for the organization to be as prepared as you possibly can be and then to deliver what that strategy is with your people. And Without your people, you cannot deliver it. So you know, recognize what they've done. Make sure you've got the right team there and give them the credit for what they've done. It should never be me. It's all about others and, and helping. I think about you know, what legacy you want to, a personal legacy. How would you wish to be remembered? Um, and I think you know, to be a a good husband, a good father, and a good grandfather um, is how one would you know, like to be remembered. As far as work is concerned, I think someone who cared, um, created a sense of purpose, uh, enabled a team to succeed, and that people enjoyed coming into work. They had a bounce and a, a lightness in their step because actually they were going to have a a fun day mm. um, and, and fun in a positive way, not, not a stupid way. Yeah. Um, because there, there is, um, I don't know, if you achieve something, you achieve your mission, whatever that mission might be, um, for the whole team, uh, it's just so important. It gives you a purpose to your life. Mm. Mm. No, I think it's, it's beautifully put. And we're a long time dead, so why not enjoy the work we do and have a sense of purpose, meaning that why? Um, penultimate question, uh, Seamus, uh, executive teams, you, you not only do you train executive teams and C-suites, but throughout your career, you've been someone who's been developing teams. On the occasions when you've inherited a toxic team or one of your sub-teams is toxic, maybe an individual or the, or the culture's gone bad in it, what's your tip on how you found it worked to turn that around into a high-performing team from one that was toxic? I think I've been very lucky. I don't think I've ever inherited or, or been part of a toxic team directly, but I've, I've observed toxic leadership. And I would agree with you in the past, it wasn't addressed as it might have been. Uh, people didn't question leaders. And I think these days leaders... The majority of leaders um, encourage questioning. They welcome people being challenged. And if you don't do that, um, you, you don't get the very best out of your teams. Um, I think my top tip for creating a high-performance team would be that when you come into a team, it's so important to get to know everybody. And you go back to John Adair, who wrote in the early 70s, didn't he? Team, task, and individual. Mm. And that's what we were all taught at Sandhurst. So get to know your top team. Get to know their strengths and their weaknesses. And once you know your team, and you don't have long to do it because you need to, you know, you, you can't 
break. You need to move on from what your successor was, the predecessor was doing. But I think you need to have a very clear strategy. Um, I think you need to um, have diversity in the team. And it's so we're more aware of that now. And it, it's important. Probably the most important is cognitive diversity. But if you can get in there, gender diversity, ethnic diversity, encourage free thought, you're going to get the best out of your team. I think you should, I've alluded already, I think you should welcome challenge. Um, if you can inject that passion to succeed, uh, ensure there's very clear lines of responsibilities and use mission command, state what has to be achieved. Um, yes, they're left and right of arc of what their constraints are. Give them the necessary resources and let them get on with it and don't interfere. And if they feel they can come to you, if they need help, you need to check clearly. I, I think you're going to succeed. And I, I say in business, and I think it would probably translate into the military as well, but you, know, you, you need to have a, a very clear strategy about what you're going to do, ideally on a page. Mm. Um, I think then you need to have a risk register and you need to manage it. And you need to make sure that your cash is positive. If you've managed those, you're probably going to you know, succeed. Um, sound, sound advice, very sound advice. I mean, in the military, the cash bit is operational capability. So does your team generate the operational capability, your command that it, that it should? Yeah, no, great, great wisdom. Thank you. The... Um, the next question was really on a book that you've read recently that you found has some great wisdom and you recommend it to others. What, which book would you choose and why do you think people should read it? I'm going to choose two, I think. And uh, I think the, the first one is, and I, I reread it every now and again, is the, the War Diaries of Field Marshal Lord Allenbrook, um, who acted as the head of the services from 1939 uh, until 1945, or I think it's probably 1940, but he describes how he had to deal with uh, Churchill, who could be a difficult man, I think was an inspiring leader, um, how during the war, you know, he dealt with the, the disappointments. He always wanted to go back and command in the field, but I think it was quite right. He was, the, he was probably the only man who could handle Churchill and get the very best out of Churchill. Um, the relationships he created with the Americans. But he just wrote a paragraph at the end of each day for a man that was under real pressure for four or five years. And I, I just learned from him. He, he still managed to make time you know, at the weekend or the odd break during the week to have a dinner, to see his wife. You know, he went on the odd, you know, the odd shoot um, and he, he read still. And I think those things are are so important. And those men seem to have time for it. Um, yeah, I mean, another one is you know, Other Men's Flowers by Lord Field Marshal Lord Wavell. Yeah. He could quote poetry. He, you know, how do our people, do they think they have time today? And it's, it's so difficult to make time because you know, probably during this hour we've been chatting, you've, you'll have had, you know, I can see it on the bottom right hand end of my screen. You've got emails coming in. It's just nonstop, isn't it? And you'll be getting texts and LinkedIn messages and various other things. But you've just somehow got to keep things in perspective. In perspective, sorry. 
Um, and another book I led was P Peter Drucker um, the, from the leadership or the leaders, leaders of the future. And I, I, I dipped back into Evernigger because he wrote the book in 1996. And he managed to identify all the traits, the challenges that we're dealing with now, the importance of having diverse teams, the importance of having women leading companies um, as part of uh, boards, but, but having you know, people from different nations doing it. And that's what the RCDS did. You'd be discussing an issue and you think, I think I know the answer to this, but by the time you'd spoken to somebody from Saudi Arabia, somebody from Ghana, somebody from China, somebody from Russia, somebody from Israel, you thought, I don't know all the answers. You know, I need to understand that. I need to consult and see it from their, see it from their perspective. Mm. Really, really thoughtful. Seamus, thank you. Would you kindly now, um, for the two-minute top tip, which stands in its own right, introduce yourself again, uh, tell us about the D Group, and give us your two-minute top tip. Right. Um, well, thank you. Thank you very much. And thank you very much for allowing me to speak for nearly an hour. But uh, So I'm, I'm Seamus Kerr. I'm Managing Director of the D Group. Uh, we're a strategic business development company, and we're here to help companies realise their ambitions and succeed. Uh, we also work closely with government uh, to bring government and uh, business together. I wouldn't overstate our role, but we try in a small way to do that, to um, translate some very complex policies into the how with the realities businessmen can do. So it's not me, it's what the businesses bring to that and produce papers and produce, produce feedback. Um, and I learn so much every day from our speakers and our members. Um, and the kind of the key themes we deal with are national security, space, infrastructure, technology, and that all important subject at the moment of net zero and sustainability. Um, you asked me for a, a top tip um, around um, sort of life in a way, I suppose. Uh, and I, you know, you've taken me through a journey that I haven't gone back into for a long time, but going you know, right from your childhood as a boy to going away to boarding school at six, all the way through to, to now. Um, and I would, I would say, find something you have a passion for and follow it. Um, and if you're, if you're fortunate to do that, and I think part of it is a mindset, that actually you, you probably never need to go to work. I don't think I've gone to work in my life. Um, and I hope that doesn't sound trite, but you know, I enjoy getting into work early in the morning because it means I can have some time to think and clear my inbox. I spend my day seeing people all day and have this wonderful conversation we've had for an hour. And then normally have one or two evening events with members, either doing introductions or fireside chats um, or helping them with their strategy. And really, I'm, I'm just so fortunate. Um, but I never take it for granted. And I am so lucky to have a fantastic wife, Sue, behind me and family that enables me to do that. And without, without Sue's support, I, I just couldn't do it. Well, Seamus, thank you very much indeed for, for sharing that top tip and also for sharing your wisdom and experience. Please stay on the line. But thank you for being on the Inspiring Leadership Series.
So now you've heard from one of the inspiring leaders that I've interviewed, what are you going to do next? If you want to get some more free material, go to my website, jonathanperks.com, or follow me on LinkedIn, Jonathan Bowman Perks. And there you can get access to my books, uh, Inspiring Leadership and Top Tips for Inspiring Leaders. But if you want to actually do something about being a leader and constantly improving your game, raising your performance, get in touch with me about coaching you or one of your team that you want to raise the game for them. It's got to be people who want to be good to great, not people who you're trying to fire. And if you're looking for a motivational speaker, get in touch. Or if you want me to work with your team coach, I would be delighted to help you.